So I have a question. Have you ever had an encounter with somebody famous? Where you actually, like, met somebody of notoriety? Yeah? Okay, now was it on purpose? Okay, so I'm I'm guessing that the emphatic yes is probably because you paid money to stand in line at Comic-Con or at a conference of some sort. I've had a couple of brushes with famous people, um, at least somewhat famous people, uh, depending on the circles that you float around in. Um, one of them that will always stick with me, and this is, this, is, this is not a real good, I didn't sit down and have dinner with a famous person. I didn't even get to talk to this person, okay? But I literally bumped into them. It was in 2003. It was in Kuwait. It was just after the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom, where we moved into Iraq. And I was working nights. I was working from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. That meant lunchtime was midnight. And it was about midnight. Uh, me and a couple of our airmen had, had taken our lunch break. So we had gone to the tent that served as a chow hall. And it was just a large, think like a circus tent, just a little bit cleaner. Not much. And uh, we finished eating our meal, and we all decided that we needed it. Okay, who in here is not an Air Force veteran? If you're not Air Force, I don't want to hear it, okay? If you're an Army veteran or a Navy veteran, I don't want to hear it. We got done eating, and we decided to go get ice cream. Why? Because I joined the Air Force. We had an ice cream cooler over on the far side of the tent. So me and these two airmen, we got up from the table and we were walking our way to the ice cream cooler. And these two, excuse me, these two airmen were walking to my right. So I was talking to them to my right, looking to my right, not looking in front of me where I'm walking because that would make too much sense. As we walked, coming from the ice cream cooler was another group of people. Three of them, as a matter of fact. The oldest of the three, who was walking, as I'm looking at them, walking on the right, was about 60-ish, maybe a little more than 60 years old. The younger two were in their 20s or 30s. The older man was also talking to them over his right shoulder. We're walking towards each other. We're both looking the opposite directions. Neither one of us paying attention to what's... We're only in a war zone. Why would we pay attention to what's going on around us? Inevitably, he and I experienced that phenomenon in physics that makes it impossible for two objects to occupy the same space at the same time. We bumped into each other. Right about here. Now, of course, I was wearing my flak jacket because the war had started. I had my chemical 
uh, gear on, so my web belt with my mask and my canteen and all of the... And he was wearing a modified uniform. He didn't have any rank or anything on it, but he had a, a tactical vest with all kinds of flashlights and pens and, and all kinds of stuff in it that I didn't notice until later. And so we kind of did that weird thing where you run into somebody and you kind of dance around each other to try to get out of each other's way. And we each apologized and excused ourselves and we went on. I went towards the ice cream cooler and he left the chow tent. After about two steps, my brain finally registered who it was that I had just done that dance with in the middle of the chow hall. Anybody under the age of 30 is probably not going to recognize this name. Colonel Oliver North. (laughs) I bumped into Ollie in the chow hall. Of course, he was retired at that time, and he was working for Fox News as a war correspondent. He had stopped in in Kuwait to get a shower, a sleep, and a meal before going back out to the field where he was embedded with soldiers going into Iraq. So in that, that two steps, my brain is going, holy cow, that's Oliver North. That's, he was on TV for how long during the Iran-Contra trial and, and all of those things going on. And he has gone on to have an acting career. Did you know that? He was in the TV series Jag. Okay, he had a recurring part there. He, he wrote books. He's actually written some Christian fiction books. Or at least he's ghostwritten them, meaning he put his name and somebody else did the work. But he's actually quite famous, not just for the stuff that he was on trial for. And so I was, I was struck by how cool it was to actually physically encounter somebody of that notoriety. And then... It turned sour because I looked at the two airmen walking with me and I asked them if they knew who it was and they said no. And I said that was, that was Oliver North. And both of them said, who? So then I was ready to go collect my social security check because these kids didn't know who I was talking about. I didn't have the opportunity to talk to him. Man, if I had, there are questions I would have asked him, right? I didn't, I got to mumble a half-hearted apology while we danced around each other before walking to the ice cream cooler. That's, that's my story of running into Oliver North. That's my brush with fame. Pretty weak, huh? The point is, when we encounter people of any kind of notoriety, Our lives are impacted. Fact of the matter is, whether a person has notoriety or not, our lives are impacted when we encounter people. Their lives are too. So one of the things that I love about the Gospel of John, John's Gospel is full of encounters. One after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. 
And they're all encounters with Jesus. So we're going to look at, Natalie, let the cat out of the bag, we're going to look at the uh, account of the woman at the well, but we're only looking at the first 15 verses. Now, for those of you who've known me for a while, like Dave came to me this morning and said, you're, you're doing 15 verses this morning? Are we going to have enough time? I promise we're going to have enough time. So if you would, take your copy of God's Word, whether it's electronic or paper, and open it or tap to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Once you get there, let me know by standing, as we normally do, Um, Just as a refresher, as we're closing out 2023, the reason that we stand when we read God's Word is because it's God's Word. This is not Bill's Word. I'm standing too. Right? When, When a military member of higher rank walks into the office, you're required to stand as a sign of respect. Well, there is nobody of a higher rank than God Almighty. And so He is here with us. We're going to stand as a sign of respect. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied, As he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You may be seated. So, where's my slides? There we go. How do we respond when we encounter Christ? Like I said, the, 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 the number of encounters in John's gospel is, is just... Absolutely amazing. I mean, we start out in John's gospel and we, we find out uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, 
right? So we get introduced to Jesus. That's our first encounter with Jesus. Then Jesus shows up at the wedding feast, and he encounters the host of the wedding feast who didn't plan well enough and ran out of wine for the feast. And then he encounters his mom who says, I need you to do something about it. And then he encounters the servants, and he says, go fill the jugs, bring them back. So they fill the jugs with water, they bring them back, and when they open them back up, they're wine. And it's the best wine of the wedding. So there's all these encounters. Then we get to chapter 3, and he encounters Nicodemus, the Pharisee from the Sanhedrin. And during that encounter, Jesus makes it very clear that in order for a person to be saved, they must be saved by God. We can't do it. Doesn't matter how good we think we are. Doesn't matter what rules we keep. Doesn't matter what rules we don't keep. Doesn't matter what movies we go to. It doesn't matter what movies we abstain from. It doesn't matter who our parents are. It doesn't matter what state we grew up in, what country we grew up in, what church we grew up in. Salvation is something that only God can do. And now we get to chapter 4, and we get this encounter with the woman at the well. But before we get into that, let's set some context, because the first most important principle of interpreting Scripture correctly is context. we got to know what we're reading, we got to know who it was written to, and we need to know some historical information about it. So at some point following Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside and they were baptized. Excuse me, they were baptizing people. We don't know where in the Judean countryside specifically they were at. Probably somewhere along the Jordan River, but we don't know. John had moved to an area uh, uh, called Anon near Salim, and the scripture tells us that water was plentiful there. Now, that, if you look it up on a map, Anon was about halfway between Jerusalem and Galilee. Straight route from Jerusalem to Galilee is along the Jordan River. And it goes right directly through Samaria. Straight shot. So, John is baptizing not far from where Jesus winds up in this encounter. Anon means springs. So there were natural springs in that area. Now, if you remember when John was outside of Jerusalem baptizing people in the Jordan River, calling them to repent, the Pharisees had come out of Jerusalem and asked him a question. Who gave you the authority to do this? Because you are implying to the people of God that we are unclean. You're equating us with Gentiles. That's not right. So John moved. John's move into Samaria was an indication that the gospel was not just for the Jews. 
One thing we don't know is what time of year this was, though there are some clues. First, we know that John had been baptizing in the Jordan River. The Jordan River goes through a cycle, right? During the rainy season, late winter and spring and early summer, it's running really, really high. It's at flood stage. You don't baptize people in the Jordan River during that. Not unless you don't want to see them again. Now, if, if baptism really is a ticket to heaven, that's the way to do it. I baptize you in the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy. Whoops. <laughs> that's So John was probably baptizing during the summer to the beginning of fall when the water was down, not quite at the driest stage, but when it was down to a manageable level. Just makes sense. And John chose the location in Samaria because there were springs that helped keep the water flowing. Most importantly, John chose that location because the Holy Spirit led him there. Remember, John is the only person described in Scripture as having the Holy Spirit from birth. The only person. Very important to note. So now, knowing that location, it might be kind of surprising for you that John had moved up there to call people to be baptized. It shouldn't be surprising to you that people were coming to be baptized. Because these were Samaritans. They knew that they weren't quite on par with what God had commanded. So the message is getting out. People are being baptized. And then, <laughs> finally, John the disciple. Uh, and, I, and How many of you have read through John's gospel? At least once. Okay? Probably two or three or four times. Right? Love John's gospel. John is not a chronological record keeper. John's topics are grouped much more thematically. And so it might be that you read about something in John chapter 5 that actually took place closer to the end of Jesus' ministry. But John kind of grouped it together because it makes sense topically. But in this case, John uses a chronological indicator to tell us when this happened. He says this is before John was arrested and imprisoned. Okay, now we, we know something. We know roughly when that happened. So we know roughly in Jesus' ministry when this occurs. That gives us some needed context. Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. And I've already told you that a straight line from Jerusalem to Galilee is along the Jordan River through Samaria. Most Hebrews, most Jews... Now, a little bit of linguistic understanding. When you hear the word Jew, that is actually taken from Judean. That's what the Romans called people from Judea. If you were from Galilee, you were a Galilean. 
You were not a Jew. Even if you were Hebrew, you were not a Jew. The Jews were the people from Judea. Judea. Get it? Right? Romans were just smart. Samaritans were Samaritans. Galileans were Galileans. Right? Nazareth. Nazarites. Nazarethites. Whatever they... They're from Nazareth. I'll spit it out eventually. Bear with me. I did have the flu a couple weeks ago. Um, So, the people of Samaria were hated by the people of Judea. Not necessarily the people from Galilee, but the people from Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was. Judea is where the Sadducees were. Now, a couple of months ago, I, I told you guys the Sadducees were predominantly the priests and Levites that served in the temple. The Pharisees were predominantly the rabbis and the teachers of the law. Well, they had a stronghold, a stronghold in Jerusalem as well. And, of course, the people in the capital around Jerusalem, the people who were influenced by them, they all looked down on the Samarians, the Samaritans. Samaria was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. So when Solomon's kingdom split, you had the northern ten kingdoms and you had the southern kingdoms, right? What can be said about the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel? How many good ones did they have? Zero. (laughs) None. And that's why the northern kingdom was taken into captivity first. And then the southern kingdom was taken into captivity along with the northern kingdom. Well, when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, a lot of the rich, influential people, the, 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 the ruling family, the politicians, the governors, the priests, the people who had influence were taken away from the land. But the land wasn't just left empty. The invading army brought their politicians and their rich people and their it, it kind of like how when you know Atlanta was taken over during the Civil War, people who were arrested they forfeit their land and their land was given to Northerners who came down here. Right? That's that's how war works. It's just one of those things. Well, the Samaritans were descendants of those intermixed pagans and their Israelite brothers who had already been polluting the faith in God that they were supposed to have. They, they followed their kings. They worshipped in the high places. They worshipped at the Asherah poles. They worshipped ba- uh, Baal. They worshipped um, uh, uh, Molech. They worshipped Dagon. They worshipped all of these pagan gods along with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That doesn't work. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so (laughs) when a Jew had to make the trip to Galilee, now many of the people down in Jerusalem and and Judea would never go to Galilee because Galilee had its own problems. All right? Galilee was a place that was populated by a lot of Gentiles. So they didn't like the Gentiles. 
But they could avoid them if they had to. But the Samaritans, they would go 40 miles out of their way to go east, to cross the Jordan River, and to go up through Perea and Decapolis before going into Galilee to avoid going through Samaria. That's how much they hated it. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. That's like, that's like going around I-12 instead of taking 10 through New Orleans, right? That's, that's what that sounds like. Have you ever gotten stuck on I-10 when you meant to take 12 and take 10 through New Orleans to get to the other side? I don't recommend it. That was the most miserable day of my life. I didn't think I was ever going to get out of that city, right? We have cars. <laughs> we, we drive fast. Most of the people who made that trip, when I say they went 40 miles out of their way, they did it on the Shoe Leather Express. They were walking in the desert, in the heat, 40 miles. How much do you have to hate people to go 40 miles out of your way in the desert? To avoid going through their town on foot. And I love how John put this. Verse 4 And he had to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to, except that it was God's purpose. There was an alternate route, but Jesus didn't take it. And so, Jesus went through Samaria. Second piece of context, if we go with my assumption that this took place during the drier season, summertime, that means that they were making this trip during the summer. Well, that's easy. You just go at night, right? No. Why did people not travel at night in the desert and in the Judean wilderness? Creatures, <laughs> lions and tigers and bears, oh my, scorpions, spiders, snakes, and then the most dangerous animal, people. There were highwaymen, there were brigands, there were robbers, there were people that would beat you up and kill you and take your possessions. No, you did not walk at night. So you went during the day, in the desert, in the heat. And ordinarily, you didn't go very far. Maybe 20 miles in a day, just because of the heat. The final piece of context for us to keep in mind is the audience that read this gospel. Who wrote, traditionally, because we don't know for sure, but who do we 
say tradition says, wrote this gospel? John, the disciple, right? All right, what was his background? What college did he go to? He didn't. What, what rabbis did he study under? <laughs> Jesus, for three years. His, he was a working class fisherman. He was not Paul. He was not taught as a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, taught by some of the greatest scholars in Hebrew history. No, he's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. He was writing this to plain-spoken, non-formally educated people. John's seminary was three years walking around with Jesus. That's it. When we read our responsive reading, there are many other things that Jesus did with his disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these things are recorded. Why? So that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. That's why John wrote this book. John wrote this book so people could know whether they were Jewish now, now keep in mind, John was from Galilee. John was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. John probably spent more time than most of the Jewish people of that time would recommend with Gentiles. Because Galilee was a melting pot. It was full of Gentiles and Jews and pagans and everybody else. John wrote this letter so that people would know who Jesus was. That Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was very God, and that the deliverance that God brought to Israel was not temporal. It was not just in one time period. It was not political. It was not military. It was not economics. It was reconciliation between the holy God and the most unholy people. That's why John wrote this. The majority of people who read this gospel in the first century were probably people of Jewish descent and probably Samaritans. So this encounter would have a very significant meaning to them. And there were probably Gentiles too. So now look at what John tells us about this. Jesus found out that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. All right? How did they respond to John baptizing and making disciples? They questioned his authority, right? Who said you could do this? Who gives you the right to tell the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, who gives you the right to tell them that they need to repent and be baptized? That's not right. And John says that they found out Jesus and his disciples were teaching more people and baptizing more people than John. How do you think they would respond? Probably not very well. This kind of sets up the, the conflict between Jesus and the religiously, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, the religiously conservative experts in Jerusalem. That's who Jesus fought with. 
The Pharisees were the conservative religious Jews. If Jesus was making disciples and convincing people that they were in need of the purification demonstrated by baptism, that means he was setting himself up as an authority opposed to the message of the Pharisees. So the message of the Pharisees was very simple. You keep God's law because you're a Jew. And if you don't, then you're an unclean Jew and you don't get to go to synagogue and you can't go to the temple and you get cut out of the religious life of the people and you're an outcast. The Pharisees were very comfortable with their level of religious control over the people of Jerusalem. And believe me, religious authority over people is a very, very big temptation. It feeds ego, it feeds pride, it feeds self-righteousness, it feeds the sin of self. That's why so many high-visibility religious leaders have fallen so publicly. This morning, down here on the floor, Pastor Joel asked me if I was ready for this morning. What did I say? I am never ready to stand up here. I am never ready. Public speaking does not bother me at all. Obviously. Right? Preaching does not. Standing up here telling you what God's word says. I am never ready for that responsibility. And the day I ever tell you that I'm ready for that. Don't let me up here. It's a very big temptation for people who are in a leadership role within the church to abuse that power. And that's why Jesus left town. Because it wasn't time for that conflict yet to erupt. It wasn't time for Jesus to have to fight head-to-head with the Pharisees. The time had not yet come. So Jesus went... Back towards Galilee. It was hot. And so he decided for more reasons than one not to detour 40 miles out of the way. Can't say that I blame him. I've been in the desert during the summer. On his way through Samaria, he came to the location of the field that Jacob had given to Joseph as an inheritance. So he stopped in the nearby town of Sychar. And John tells us that they stopped there because Jesus was weary from the trip. I know Danny has talked about we need to be careful that we never forget about Jesus' divinity and we never forget about Jesus' humanity. This passage screams Jesus' humanity. John tells us it was the sixth hour. That's high noon. It was the middle of the day. The sun is in the middle of the sky. It is probably the middle of July. It is hot, and Jesus has probably been walking for six hours. And so, Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey. He was bone tired. Jesus in his humanity. His feet were dirty. His feet were sore. His face was probably scorched. 
He was probably feeling a little bit of sunburn. He was probably dehydrated a little bit because you cannot be in that climate and not be dehydrated a little bit. You're in that climate. When you step outside into the sun, you can feel the sweat evaporate from the bottom of your feet. It is hot. If you want to know what it's like, go home, put your oven on 350 degrees. Once it preheats, open the door, stick your head in. I'm not joking. That's what it's like. And if any of you is tempted to say, well, at least it's a dry heat. Once it's over 110, it don't matter. Jesus was tired. (laughs) He was hot. He was wore out. And so he stopped. From Jerusalem to Jacob's well was roughly 30 miles. Now, we don't know if Jesus started out at Jerusalem or if he was closer up to the border. Let's say it was, let's say it was half that. Let's say he had 15 miles to walk at two miles an hour. He'd been walking for a long time. I have a hard time walking around the mall. I have a hard time walking around the block. He was tired. So while Jesus is sitting at Jacob's well, his disciples go into town to buy food. All right, now that says a lot. The first thing that says to me is that his disciples are not from Jerusalem because they were willing to go into town to buy food. They were all Galilean. They were all from the north. They went into town to buy food, so Jesus is sitting at the well. There are some more important clues as we read this about this woman. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Just that part right there, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. The time to go to the well to draw water is not high noon. That is the worst possible time to go draw water out of the well. Second, a woman of Samaria came to the well, one, by herself. Going to the well to draw water was a social gathering time. The women of town would all go to the well, and they would talk. They would socialize. This woman came out alone in the middle of the day by herself, which tells us that she was not welcome as part of the social gathering. So she didn't go in the morning, and she didn't go in the evening when it was cooler, She went during the worst part of the day. And I don't want to discount Jesus' divinity, but I don't want us to overinflate Jesus' divinity here, right? Because later on, in, in the next part of the passage that we're going to look at the next time I'm up here, when Jesus talks to her about her marital status, right? It's easy for us to read that. And he's like, man, he's got such miraculous insight. Jesus is 30 years old. He's a Jewish man. He lives in this area. He gets the social cues. 
He understands that it is out of place for this woman to be at this well by herself in the middle of the day. He's not stupid. And so he understood, using his human reasoning, that this woman was out of place, that she was an outcast. Now, he might not have known why specifically, and yet there is some degree to which the Holy Spirit did influence his knowledge. But we cannot forget that he was a human being with a brain. And yes, men can use those. I'm just saying, we choose not to. Well, there were at least a couple of you awake enough to hear that. All right. So, considering that Jesus understood that this woman was an outcast, his speaking to her was a surprise in so many ways. It was evident from his speech that he was Hebrew, not Samaritan. He was coming from the south, so she assumed he was a Jew. Right? Because he's coming from the south. Probably his... Accent, his manner of speech was very similar to that of Judeans. He was unaccompanied. She was unaccompanied. She knew her reputation. She knew why she was an outcast. He probably figured it out. And yet Jesus risked his reputation by asking this immoral Samaritan woman to give him a a drink. She is probably thinking, if any of the Pharisees find out, you will be lucky to see the inside of a synagogue or a temple in the rest of your lifetime. Because that's just not right. You guys don't associate with us, let alone somebody like me. And so she asked him, how do you dare... As a Jew, are you that confident or are you that bad (laughs) to ask me for a drink of water? Generally speaking, is it our natural predisposition to think that somebody is that good or somebody is that bad? That bad. She is not thinking that Jesus is that good that his reputation can stand a little bit of tarnish from asking her for a drink. When she encountered Jesus, the necessary component that was lacking when she approached him was the component of humility. In order to be humble when we come before Christ, we need to understand who we are. More importantly, we need to understand who he is. It's obvious that she didn't know who he was. In this particular case, Jesus, the God of the universe, is reaching out to a fallen, immoral, unclean sinner... And I would bet that her gut reaction was he was a fallen, unclean, immoral sinner that was probably using a a request for a drink to proposition her for something else. 
Jesus' response to her, if you knew me, if you knew the gift of God and the one who is asking you for water, your response would have been different. Now, I don't want to beat up on the Samaritan woman because at one point in our lives, every one of us was the Samaritan woman. Right? Even if you came to faith as a little tiny child, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for children who come to faith at a young age that they don't necessarily have to go through a life of being as bad as some of us were before we came to faith in Christ. Okay? She had not heard the gospel. She didn't know Jesus. She wasn't in Jerusalem. She wasn't raised in Jerusalem. She was not a Jew. She was a Samaritan. She was raised in a tradition that had taught her basically the same thing that today's world teaches. You can do and you can believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere about it. Ultimately, you're the one in control. That's the message of the world today, right? That is the message of the world that we live in. You can believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere in it, all right? Now, if you think that that is okay, I challenge you. I want you to sincerely believe that if you climb up to the roof, you can jump off and fly. Ain't none of us going to sincerely believe that. Okay, I've, I've studied aerodynamics and gravity enough to know that this bird is not built for flight. I will fly like a stone right at the ground. But that's the tradition she was raised in. She was taught that you can do whatever you want. If you want to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's great for you. You ever had somebody tell you that when you share Jesus with them? That Jesus guy, that sounds like it's a great thing for you. I just don't believe that. I'm sorry. It's my job to tell people who Jesus is. Now she knew the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because she, she pointed out, you know, this is, this is Jacob's well. She knew the stories. I'll bet you you encountered people this last week who knew the story of why we celebrate Christmas. Not Santa Claus. But I'll bet you there's people out there who know that we celebrate Christmas because of Jesus. I mean, there's people who are completely irreligious who have nativity sets at their house. Why? Because that's one of the trappings of Christmas. It's, It's a thing. It's a social thing. She knew the traditions, but she didn't know God. I'm going to give you some um, really, really troubling statistics. During the fall meeting of the Gulf Coast Baptist Association, we live in the portion of the state. Now, when I say we, I mean the association. So we're talking the six coastal counties, basically speaking. 
right? I know the association doesn't count all six of those counties. It's, it's different. But let's say the six coastal counties, just for simplicity's sake. We live in the part of the state with the highest population of people per square mile. Did you know that? The largest city in the state of Mississippi is Jackson. The number two city in the state of Mississippi is Gulfport. And oftentimes they swap places. It's that close. We are also in the area with the fewest Southern Baptist churches per capita in the state of Mississippi. We have the highest population and the smallest number of churches per person. And I would go so far as to say that we probably have the fewest churches per capita regardless of denomination. When you consider that we have the highest population. We have the highest percentage of the population in the state that is unchurched. Unchurched means that they do not regularly attend a church at least two times a month. That's unchurched. In fact, we have the highest percentage of people in this area who have never been churched. That means outside of attending for a wedding, a funeral, or maybe a Christmas or Easter service, they're not associated or affiliated with a church at all. Zero. Not at all. That doesn't mean they're ignorant of the Bible stories. It doesn't mean they're ignorant of the trappings of the faith. Because they permeate our society. That doesn't mean our society is a Christian society. That means Christianity has permeated our society without people knowing where it comes from. What that means is that we have to be intentional about introducing people to the gospel message of Jesus Christ from the authority of Scripture And we cannot make the mistake of assuming that they understand the words that we use. When I say God, I have a very specific definition in mind. When a lot of people say God, they have something that looks more like the invention of George Lucas from Star Wars. Or they think it's the universe. The universe is not a personal God. The universe is creation. So we have got to do that. Now, she shows that she didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when she pointed out to him. (laughs) Look at her response. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And she says, you don't even have a cup to get water out of the well with. Where are you going to get living water? Living water, by the way, refers to water flowing in a stream. They are in the middle of a desert at a well. There is no stream. That's why you dig wells. Where are you going to get living water from? 
She doesn't get it. So she looks at Jesus and she says, Are you better than Jacob? Who do you think you are? What we have is good enough. And you think you have something more to offer? Is what we have good enough? Is what the world has out there good enough? Is it good enough for a person to know maybe some of the history of who Jesus was, but not know Jesus? Is it good enough for people to know that we celebrate Christmas because it's Jesus' birth without them knowing about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection? Is that good enough? Her response, not only was it not humility, but it was pride. This well's good enough for our people. It was good enough for Jacob. It was good enough for Joseph. It was good enough for the patriarchs. What makes you think you have anything better to offer? What makes us think we have something better to offer? Is it because we believe it sincerely? Is it because we're convinced of our faith? If I believe that what I have to offer is better because I'm offering it, (laughs) there's a problem. I believe what I have is better to offer because I have the testimony of what Christ has done in this life and in the lives of others that I interact with on a regular basis. I have the testimony of Scripture. I have the things that I have seen. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Right? And it's things that we've already experienced. Our faith isn't a blind faith. She was still focused on water. Jesus wasn't talking about water. It's high noon in the Middle East. Jesus is sitting at a well. But he's talking about something so much more important than water. You know why I have this cup here? Hmm? Because I'm thirsty. Problem is, I get run in my mouth, I forget that it's down there. Every one of us knows what it is to experience physical thirst. Every, no, every one of us knows what it is to experience physical hunger. Right? I've got a news flash for you. Salvation does not rid you of thirst or hunger. Jesus was hungry. Remember that time in the desert he took where he fasted for 40 days? And, and, and we're told in Scripture that at the end of that 40 days he was hungry? And Satan came to him and said, you know, since you're God's son, why don't you do something about that? Take this, take this rock, turn it into a loaf of bread. That would make a really good loaf of sourdough. And Jesus said, no, we don't live on bread alone. We live on the word that comes from the mouth of God. We live by doing God's will. 
physically we will always have hunger or thirst or thousands of other needs in our lives, right? That's the nature of being human. But just like the rest of the world in her day and the world in our day, she considered the things of faith to be secondary. What matters is the here and now. The water that she had was good enough. Even towards the end of this, when she comes to Jesus and she says, give me this water, this living water, what's a reason for it? So I don't have to come back to this well and draw water out at high noon again. She had no interest in salvation. No interest in knowing what Jesus was talking about. The water she had was good enough. The Samaritans, they weren't all high and mighty like the Jews. Now, if she didn't have to face the scorn of all those other women, if she didn't have to face the scorching heat of the sun because she wasn't allowed to come to the well during the cool of the day because people didn't like her, that's what would make her happy. That'd be awesome. But the offer that Jesus is making is to to quench a thirst that most people don't even know they have. Blaise Pascal called it a God-shaped vacuum. Every person is born with a spot in their soul for God. Most of us don't realize it. Jesus is offering something to fill that hole. And so when we encounter Jesus and we leave that encounter, we have to ask the question, have we been changed? Whenever Jesus has encountered somebody, that person always leaves changed. Now, sometimes they don't leave changed for the better. You remember the rich young ruler, right? He encountered Jesus. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the law. Oh, I've done that. (laughs) I've done that since I was a kid. Jesus says, okay. Then here's what you do. You take all of your possessions, you sell them, you give them to the poor, come follow me. And how was that young man's life changed? He went away sad because he was really rich. His life was changed because from that point forward, he knew that there was something he was missing. His life was changed. When I bumped into Colonel North over there in the chow tent, the only change in my life was the ability to claim that I had bumped into Colonel North. And then that immediate feeling of being really old because the kids next to me didn't know who he was. I didn't realize that was a lasting change, by the way. That every time I talk to one of these kids, I feel older walking away from it. But in 1998, when I encountered Christ, my life changed. My life really changed. My life changed in ways that nobody knows. 
except for very few people who are very close to me. The thirst that I didn't even know how to identify was quenched. For the Samaritan woman, we're going to look at the conclusion of her encounter with Jesus uh, probably sometime around the end of March. she got lots of time to study. Okay? Lots of time to study. Put it on your calendar. Sometime in March, we're going to read the rest of the woman at the well. For us, the church... Most of us have had an encounter with Jesus that has left us completely and utterly changed from who we were. Now, I don't know anybody so intimately as to be able to just look at you and say, Yep, nope. That's got to be a yep. I mean... I don't. Unfortunately, when we're changed, we don't get a stamp on our forehead that says, changed. That would make it a lot easier, because then we could just walk around looking for people who don't have the stamp on their forehead, and we know who to share the gospel with, right? But it's almost like God knew we would be that lazy. So he didn't provide us with an easy out. What we need to remember for those of us who have been changed is that there is a purpose for that change. And I've got a news flash for you. Okay? We'll do an exercise. I haven't done this in a while. So I would like everybody who's here to take your right hand. Okay? Take take the palm of your right hand. And I want you to put it just underneath your right thigh on the pew. Okay, go ahead. Put put just put put your thigh down on the pew with your hand down on. Do you notice the pew is warm? Do you feel the the body heat that is stored up in that cushion from where you've been sitting there for the last hour and a half? Right. That's not your purpose. <laughs> Our purpose is not just to come here and put body heat into a seat cushion. That's not why any of us were saved. That purpose found so many places in Scripture. To be Jesus' witnesses in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I don't live in Jerusalem. Does that mean I need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to be Jesus' witness? No. Biloxi is my Jerusalem. Harrison County is my Judea. Jackson County is my Samaria. Wiggins, that's the uttermost parts of the earth. Maybe New Orleans. That's how we need to look at the world. As we go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. Paul refers to these things as the good works prepared beforehand that we were saved to walk in. We have a purpose. 
That purpose is to tell people about the Jesus that we encountered. That purpose is to share the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can have that encounter. That purpose is to make disciples. Drive-by evangelism is not good enough. Drive-by evangelism. I mean, sharing the gospel with, with your neighbor one time, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. Hi, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Here's the gospel. Jesus was born and he was a baby and, and he was laid in a manger and then he grew up and, and he was sinless and he died on the cross. And, and if you believe in Jesus, you can have salvation for your sins. Do you want to accept Jesus? Nope. Okay, thanks for your time. Now, that's already more than 90% of the people in the church do. Not this church. Just the global church. I'm not calling y'all out. That's not enough. We need to make disciples. How do you make a disciple? You build a relationship with them. You teach them the things that Jesus is teaching you. When was the last time you taught somebody something about your faith? Right now, okay, if you have children in the house, parents, discipleship 101. You have kids, easy kill. Except they eventually grow up and move you out of your house, hopefully. Um, (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. You have friends, you have grandkids, you go to the grocery store. How, how many of you go to a hair salon? Come on, raise your hand. You go to a hair salon? Is there somebody at that salon that works on your hair that might not know who Jesus is? There you go. There you go. Okay, guys, I know noticed none of you nodded your head. Yeah, I go to a beauty salon. Okay, guys, how many of you go to a barber shop? Okay, some of us. Okay, I just raised, <laughs> I raised my barber. She sits in the back. <laughs> she comes to me. You go to the grocery store? You go to a restaurant? You go to work? You go to Lowe's. You hang out with people who don't know Christ. Share him. Build relationships. Make disciples. That's what we're here for. That's what we are here for this morning. We've been changed. We need to share that change with other people. Now, on the odd chance... Again, I'm looking around the room. I know most of you pretty well. If I don't know you really well, I at least know you at some surface level. As I look around the room, I would probably be safe in assuming that everybody who's here is a Christian. But I'm not going to make that assumption. So I'm going to tell you that if you have not had that encounter with Jesus that changed your life, There's no time like the present. 
before we leave today, have a talk with God. Tomorrow is not promised. Matter of fact, this afternoon is not promised. Every one of us, when we leave here, we have to hit pass road. This afternoon is not promised. (laughs) Right? So I'm going to offer up a time of prayer. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. We don't often stand when we do this closing prayer thing until it's the actual time to depart. But I'm going to ask everybody to stand. That way it's less effort you have to exert should you choose to come down here to the altar to pray. If you want to. You don't have to. The altar's open. You can stay where you are. If you want me to pray with you, I am more than happy to do that. There is no magic bullet, and I'm sure Pastor Joel would say exactly the same thing. If, if you want him to pray with you, that's fine, right? My prayers don't get to God any faster than yours do, okay? But I am more than happy to pray with you before we bring up the offering. So let's go ahead and go into that time of prayer.